Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hi, I'm Ellen Pompeo, and this is Tell Me. Welcome to Tell Me. Here it is, the first episode. I'm so excited that my first episode is Yara Shahidi. I've known Yara for a while now, and most of you know Yara from being an award-winning actress, a producer, breakout star of ABC's Emmy and Golden Globe-nominated series Blackish. She's now the executive producer and lead of the spin-off series on Freeform called Grownish. She's also founded something called We Vote Next, which she's very passionate about. Yara is an incredible human being, and she is just so impressive and thoughtful about the things she chooses to speak about. I love that my daughters see her and listen to what she says and admire her. I couldn't be prouder that I'm debuting my first episode of Tell Me with Yara Shahidi. Yara, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, of course. Thank you for thinking of me. I always think of you. Listen, Yara... We look to her for so many things, but I look to her to stay cool with and up on my music. <laughs> like, what is she listening to? You know, listen, I have a 12-year-old, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm constantly in a race with her to make sure I'm staying up on things. So you're kind of like my secret weapon. I'm so glad I can be <laughs> utilized for that. Having a 13-year-old brother, I'm very familiar with that race to be ahead of him <laughs> in the music space. Does that take up so much of your time? <laughs> You have so much free time, Yara. <laughs> you know, you just lay around a lot. So you have so much free time to stay up on your music. I have to ask you, have you listened to Donda? Or have you watched it? I have not watched it. I've kind of done a perusal. So this was the way I chose to listen, was going to my friends who have features and listening to that first. So I've listened to a handful of songs, but I haven't fully dove in. What is the proper conjugation of dive past tense? <laughs> well... You would know that much more than I would, my love. <laughs> Don't ask me for proper grammatical. Yeah, I guess dove. Dove. Dove is right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What about you? Is there a suggestion as to how I go about listening? Well, I, you know, am a super visual person mm -hmm. and I love visuals. And so I watched it mm -hmm. before I listened to it. Now I listen to it when I work out. Right. But I watched it first because I wanted to really experience the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And I thought the Larry Hoover stuff was really moving. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know so much about that story, but I learned a little bit of it just from watching it. And I want to take a moment and learn more about that. Mm -hmm. You know, wow. It's such a huge production, as we always get from right. him. It's always, you know, over the top, which is what we love. Visually, it's over the top. 
it's a lot. I don't want to give too much away for you, but, you know, you're in production and you'll see when you watch it what it must have taken to put that together. I think that's my favorite part of being in the entertainment world is watching other things because it makes everything you watch just that much more impressive when you understand the lengths that teams have to go to and go through to make certain moments possible. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, there aren't many. I mean, Beyonce does it, of course. Rihanna's Fenty show, Mm -hmm. you know, is always incredible. You know, in my day, it was Madonna. Right. The production value of Madonna's videos we're always so far and above what anybody else is. Mm-hmm. Maybe Princess Purple Rain was sort of another moment that was like, whoa. Right. That was really a moment where you had to pause and take a few deep mm-hmm. breaths. But there aren't so many artists that really go above and beyond and make sure it's completely over the top, visually so amazing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then I'm excited for the watch. So are you at school right now? Yes, I am currently starting senior year, which is crazy to think about. That happened very quickly. So now it's really focusing on what is my final project going to be? What do I want to come out of college saying that I have accomplished? And so it's interesting to see the kind of culmination of the past three years come to a head in this next year. That just seems like... Wow, an enormous amount of pressure. Like, you know, for most people, it's like completing three and four years of Harvard would be enough. Right. But then you really have to make an end statement about what your time there meant. Have you met Skip Gates? Yes. So, I mean, what's interesting about why Harvard became my top option is really because I came here with my cousin Nas. I was 13. He has a fellowship for students who are studying hip-hop at the Hip Hop Archive. And it was really such a big moment because as much as I've always been a total nerd, I have always like gone above and beyond in school. One, I was 13, but two, Ivy League never felt like an option per se. Never felt like a space that was open to me, even though theoretically I put in the work for that to be a possibility. And it wasn't until I was there on that trip and I met Professor Gates. I met Professor Morgan, who runs, she is the Black woman, an incredible scholar who runs our hip hop archive and met so many brown and black students and people intentionally studying different forms of art in which it felt like there was potential for space to be there. And so what's funny is Professor Gates was one of my first kind of touch points with Harvard. And it also changed how I even viewed when it was time to apply to college, where I wanted to go and why. And it became about what professors are there. How will it line up when I get to be in school? And so the choices became easier because I had this kind of clarity of vision of like, I know the impact a great professor makes. So now I'm just a professor stalker. And I was like, so who's going to be where when I hit freshman year? That's such a refreshing way to look at it. I love Skip Gates. Mm -hmm. And I've been to the W.E.B. Dubois Institute, and that's such an impressive place. It's beautiful. I love Cambridge so much. And my husband had a great experience growing up there. Although his experience, he grew up in the projects in Cambridge. Mm -hmm. In the 70s, Cambridge was such a cultural sort of coming together of so many different things happening. So as a young black and Jewish boy, I think he was exposed visually to a lot of ideas that had he just been in the projects, he would have never have had a front row seat to. Mm -hmm. But that's amazing. So when you say that you 
a professor stalker. That's <laughs> really so interesting. I've never heard of that. You know, you hear girls say, oh, this is a great party school. And this is why we love you. Like, just so <laughs> smart and thoughtful about everything. This is a great party school or this sorority. Can you talk to me about how you feel about sorority culture? Because I sort of am so confused by sorority culture. I have a lot of judgments. <laughs> Specifically, you know, I just read articles. I read something in the cut the other day about sorority rush and how there's one black girl. And obviously the sororities at historically black colleges are different. But mm -hmm. I just want to hear what you have to say about <laughs> sorority life and culture. I mean, I've been so peripheral to to it. It wasn't anything that my parents participated in either. To your point, I feel like my only touch point was with HBCU sorority culture, which is very different. And so having an aunt that's a Delta and an uncle that's an Alpha, my touch point was with kind of the community factor of it. And like when I would even do work with Deltas, it was always philanthropically aligned. And so it just, it's a different way of orienting yourself that feels much more community oriented with versus kind of like dominant culture, sorority culture, which I, I literally have such little experience of to even begin to wrap my mind around it since Harvard, as a lot of Ivies, don't actually have Greek life on campus. And so they have different kind of iterations of clubs and such, but there's nothing on a national level where you could join a club and it would be nationally recognized or you have a national network of people. So I, I don't even know where one would begin, but I am grateful that I have had the touch point with just kind of what Black fraternity and sorority culture is and understanding also the potentials of joining a group with larger philanthropic and community values, because it also gave me clarity when I was trying to figure out how to participate, not only in school, but kind of largely as a young adult, what am I going to be joining? <laughs> trying to figure out like, what do you look for in a group? And what do you look for as a way of building community? I mean, yes, of course, the community aspect of sorority life makes complete sense to me. Mm -hmm. I think what is confusing to me is the rushing and all the sort of inclusivity and you're welcome and you're not welcome. And yeah. it's like, are you good enough? And you're not good enough. And we all get together and say, this person is worthy of being in our organization. That all just seems so contrary to what the younger generation is trying to say. Right. It is fascinating since, you know, as much as I literally have such little interfacing with sorority culture, the one thing that does pop up in my TikTok was at Alabama Rush <laughs> and everyone rushing in the past month. And so being inundated with videos of that. It is, I mean, I think indicative of in this time in which we are pushing for more inclusivity, the ways in which there are certain infrastructures still in place to remain and to keep exclusive. And so now it's like, okay, well, you may have gotten into the school now, but you're not going to get into this one institution that helps cement your social standing, your communal standing. And so, I mean, I am interested by how that works. And even sometimes I think of, you know, having so many friends of different identities and backgrounds here, how our cultural identities have informed how we're able to participate, particularly in predominantly white institutions. And the idea of oftentimes that's not even available to us just because there's so much you have to focus on just to get through college. So many of my friends, and I, I think this is a common for many a college student, you're thinking about the feeling of having to make it out with a degree that's actually useful. 
And so there's this idea of like, I have to have a job as soon as I hop out of school. And you look at all these stats in which you say, okay, a black Ivy League grad has the same amount of kind of quote unquote privilege as a dominant culture person that went to a state school. So you do all this work to get into the top institution and you're not necessarily guaranteed a space in these top fields or something that's reflective of the place that you went. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. So I'm completely obsessed with Cultureverse. <laughs> Thank you. With you and Kelly Marie Tran. It's so fascinating. If anyone out there, if you have teenage kids and you need something to do on the way to school or before bed, Cultureverse is a great podcast series that's storytelling with Yara and Kelly Marie Tran. And I'm really enjoying it and loving it. It's it's kind of a little bit tricky to find things for 12-year-old girls. Mm -hmm. You know, there's Doja Cat, which we love. But, you know, there's some bad words. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I'm really, like, living through this moment of trying to, like I said at the top, like trying to stay current and cool and letting them listen to things and, you know, explaining to them what goes on and how artists speak and how they convey what they want to convey and mm -hmm. keep an open mind. But then there's amazing, nice storytelling <laughs> with a real lesson like Cultureverse. So thank you for putting that material out in the world. I appreciate it. Of course. I mean, I was so excited to be a part of that because we've talked and I know our production companies have such similar core values, but it was just crazy timing because we we're also in the process of developing something that speaks to my own growing up with cultural fairy tales and how that has informed so much of like how I see the world and relate to the world. And so I'm a total podcast nerd. And so when PRX reached out about this, it was just like the craziest timing and most perfect alignment because they're taking these cultural folklore and fairy tales. So not only is it educational because you get to know more, but I love the way that they're updating them in such an authentic way. Yeah, I mean, they're super relevant. Mm -hmm. It's a nice mix of like mixing in the tech stories and the cyberbullying. So I've listened to like three of them so far. And uh, they touch on, you know, cyberbullying, mm -hmm. climate change. Anyway, I highly recommend it. So the one thing I wanted to ask you, because you do so many things, mm -hmm. which is impressive in itself, has going to school and stepping away part-time from entertainment, has it changed your mind from when you started? Like, how much has the school experience for you changed your focus or changed your mind or solidified your focus or solidified your ideas about what you thought you wanted to do? Or did you have an idea about what you want to do when you finish school? So, I mean, I came into school knowing what I wanted to study, but ultimately my academic world and my entertainment world felt so separate to me. And so I didn't expect there to be kind of any sort of continuity between what I was doing in the outside world and then what I was studying. But what was interesting is it's maybe the latter option, which it's like my studies have reaffirmed what I've been doing in entertainment, particularly because the transition from being an actor to being an actor and a student also happened with becoming a producer as well, which I think 
then allowed my studies to take on new meaning. I mean, I'm, I'm in the social studies and African-American studies department. And so much of what is discussed is like, well, what does inclusive progress look like? And I think what my studies have allowed me to do is really dig deep on these principles I thought were important in media. And quite honestly, I feel like it's unlocked a new creativity about how do I want to approach creating television, participating in television, participating in media broadly. And so those are things that really took me by surprise, just the constant way in which whatever I was learning felt like it was informing what I was bringing into my work as much as I was like, okay, sure, because I'm interested in some core tenets of representation, inclusivity, like that'll appear in everything I do. But my mother can attest the amount of times I call from the library, like, okay, either I read this story that's incredible and because it was written in whatever BCE, it must be public domain or whatever those things are. But as of right now, as I'm looking towards the end of my college journey, I'm still a little unsure of how I want to use my degree. Obviously, I feel like I've learned a lot that I can take into the production space and production something that I would see myself in for quite a long time. But there's also a part of me where I was considering law school. There are certain programs, especially in the UK, I was looking at all the Oxford programs where it's like master's degree in nine to 12 months. I don't know, easier said than done. But when at least you're looking at the time commitment, I was like, I could do that. That's like two seasons of a show. <laughs> I think in many ways, I don't know if work would have felt as purposeful if I wasn't in school because school has continuously given me new and exciting routes in which to try and express or tinker with what I find important and see if there's new efficient ways of going about it. And vice versa, I think school wouldn't have felt as meaningful. And something that somebody had brought up, which I felt like was a really good point, was as much as I've had this crazy schedule that has made me fly cross country for the past some years, I don't know how often, Having this career has also meant that I've gotten to unabashedly study what I want without the pressure of figuring out how this was going to be useful in my life or translate to an opportunity, a career, a fellowship. And so that's something that I feel so extremely privileged to experience, the idea that if I saw a class, that it does not matter how random it is. If that was an interest of mine, I could study it because I have this career and I didn't have to think about it. It wasn't this looming pressure to figure out how is this contributing to my greater life immediately. And so ultimately, everything I've taken has felt like I've gone through a personal transformation every single semester, but I didn't have to start by saying, what am I gaining from this? I got to discover that along the way. So two things strike me about what you said. The first is that you're an artist at heart, right? <laughs> yes. Because you're using your experience to fuel your art. Mm -hmm. Whatever that experience is, like all the great artists, whether you're a musician or a painter or an actor, mm -hmm. you've taken this experience and used it for your art. We always get the best art, mm -hmm. you know, when that's the foundation for the art that you're making is what your life experience is. And then the second thing that I think is important to recognize and celebrate and just talk about for a moment is you take the time to think about, which is easier said than done, to sit in a position of privilege and say, well, clearly I'm privileged and I didn't have the pressure to have to think about what will I do with this degree. Mm -hmm. Just because it sounds easy to do doesn't mean that everybody does it. Mm -hmm. It's so important, you know, whether you're an actress on a TV show or whether you're something else, to take a moment and allow the space in your mind 
to think, well, I'm grateful and I'm lucky because I had this. Mm -hmm. Whatever the situations are in your life, find those situations in which you can create the space to say that. Mm -hmm. I'm lucky because I have this. I'm grateful because I have that. I find just to give the positivity and the gratitude space the rest of it doesn't feel so heavy. Yeah. You know, it doesn't feel like a challenge. And I, I think every time we think about other people, and it could be worse for us. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, everything is relative, right? Mm -hmm. But I do think that thinking about other people and gratitude, and it, it could be worse, does help your experience just be more joyful. It's a great point because that's something, I mean, my family is big on just focusing on gratitude. And ever since I was little, my brothers and I used to have to write in a gratitude journal every night to just kind of list things that we were grateful for. But thinking about that as it pertained to my college journey was so helpful because in all honesty, I went through all sorts of feelings and emotions about feeling cheated from this experience I thought I was going to have, whether it be what we all went through of just COVID and how it's completely shifted everyone's plans, everything that you thought you had set in stone. And for me, I went through a year and a half of an academic term, half of a sophomore year, all of junior year, not necessarily getting that experience. But then in the time that I was on campus, that was when I was still working pretty much full time. And I have a wonderful team, but a lot of the investment early on was under the guise of now I'm going to have a year and a half, two years to just be in school and have a lighter schedule. And so there was so much to reconcile personally when it felt like, okay, plans are shifting, not just for me, but for literally everyone. And how do I process the fact that I kind of had this um, delayed gratification mindset of like, oh, but things are going to be so good at this point. Once I get to school, once all of the perfect conditions line up so that I'm here unencumbered, et cetera, et cetera. And as much as that is coming true for my senior year, I think sometime even this summer, I just went through a big shift of just focusing on the gratitude of the classes I've gotten to experience and the one thing that work taught me was I came into school having such a specific vision of what I wanted to accomplish because I didn't have the extra time to dilly-dally and waste credits, waste classes, which meant I found myself in the most interesting classes my freshman year, whether it be classes with graduate students, top professors, intimate settings. And so I'm so grateful for the fact that those are things that I still got to really fully enjoy and so looking at it from that perspective has allowed me a new freedom of not coming in with this feeling of working from a deficit of like something has been taken from me and now everything I'm doing is in reaction to what I feel like has been taken from me. And that's felt so freeing because I didn't realize how much I was carrying that seeming burden of this narrative I had created. And so now I'm enjoying my experience a lot more than I think I would have had I not gone through that shift of just acknowledging the gratitude, acknowledging the fact that the time that I have been in school, I have not had to worry about what I wanted to take. I have been able to have these crazy one-on-one -on -one experiences that I'll never get to recreate again. I mean, a lot of it is really, you know, as actors, what we deal with is just being present. Mm -hmm. Acting, for those of you who don't do it, mm -hmm. is really a practice of two things, listening and being present, mm -hmm. which listening is kind of the same thing as being present. So I think that those two skills are really applicable in every area of life. I try to tell my kids, 
it's a little harder, you know, with the young ones, but there's a lot to be said for just being still. Mm -hmm. Debbie Allen, who is a mentor to me and so full of wisdom, Mm -hmm. when I'm feeling anxious or when I'm feeling amped up or furious about something, she always just says, be still. Mm -hmm. And when you can be still and just take a moment, you know, then you can allow that space to just think, be present, think about gratitude, take the pressure off. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Let's talk about when we vote because you're really active in the voting space. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you're passionate about it. Yes. But how much is passion and how much is pressure? Do you ever feel like not doing the social activism and just fucking off and like <laughs> listening to music? And when you feel like just doing that, do you do that? I mean, a couple things I've realized is I put the most pressure on myself. You know my mother. My parents are very similar. I come from really a wonderful family unit where they're like, we'll support whatever you want to do. Just do it to the fullest of your ability. But even when it came to school, as much as I am a nerd that cares about grades, it was never a grade-centered space in my house. It was more so like, do you like this class? Are you learning from it? I had the parents where it's like I went from Montessori to an all-girls Catholic school to distance learning to all sorts of things just because it was based on What are my interests? What do I need right now? What provides the most support for what I need? And so I think in realizing that, I realized my through line was out of everyone in my life, I was the one presenting these really high stakes for myself about like, if I were to fail, what will happen? And so in realizing that, I've been able to make some adjustments to how I move through the world. And so Even when I think about the social engagement piece, a lot of why I feel it necessary to be socially engaged is because it feels like it gives my platform purpose. And so if anything, my work there relieves a lot of pressure. And it may sound kind of oxymoronic, but the one thing that I run into all the time, and I'm sure you're familiar, one, I feel like whoever plans red carpet events like has a master list of when the world's going to be in chaos. And it's like, and then we're going to put a major red carpet there. (laughs) And nothing feels more trivial to me than having this crazy opportunity of having a team that you love get you ready for three hours and wear this crazy cool dress and sit on this carpet and the world is burning (laughs) and you're trying to figure out kind of what to do because there are such heightened differences between the world you're experiencing at that moment and the world and the actual reality everyone else is living in. And so if anything, that created just a lot of personal chaos to try and move through the idea of being in an industry that has so much abundance and so much exorbitance and extravagance and when that's not reflective of any other part of the world. And so choosing what I was passionate about and choosing voting work and the other work that I was doing was a way of giving myself purpose and helping figure out, well, what's going to ground me in this space to feel like not only will it give me the clarity of vision to know what's for me and what's not for me, but also give me the clarity of mind to say when I am going into these spaces, when I am grateful to be wearing this luxurious outfit or whatever, what message am I walking in with? What's the goal of when I enter this space and what's the goal of when I leave? And so if anything, that really helped me get so specific 
in a way that has allowed me to feel more at peace and to not go through all of these kind of emotions of feeling like here we are in this detached, made up world. And so that's one thing that's actually been of service to me. And then in regard to just kind of general pressures, one thing that I did recently is got off of Twitter and I did not realize how much I had a literal Twitter voice in my head dictating what I felt like people were going to respond to. And what it was doing was it was kind of undercutting my knowingness of saying everything that I do is thoughtful. I'm not going to get everything right, but I promise you I thought through it. I thought deeply about it. I was in conversation with my friends and my mentors about it, thinking about the pros, the cons, the repercussions. And so the Twitter voice was adding the strange pressure of the unpredictability of somebody's critique. And I was giving it so much weight that I was totally ignoring the fact that I am a thoughtful human being <laughs> that wouldn't do anything that felt not right. And I may still have lessons to learn and mistakes that I'll make, but at least those are choices that I made versus trying to work in reaction to this kind of fake voice. And when I got, got off of Twitter, I kid you not, the way in which I felt so much lighter in how I move, I feel so much freer in terms of when I'm approaching new opportunities and decisions, because I also know that my accountability network are now people that care deeply about me and want to see me grow. So when somebody is coming to me with, hey, have you thought about that? Hey, you need to give consideration to this. It's coming from such a different space. It's not some random voice that has nothing to do with you, but somebody that's seeing you and say, I want you to be better. I want you to progress and grow. So I'm going to give you this so that you can learn from it. And so that's released. I don't know how much pressure. I did not realize how much being so involved in social media was changing what I did. And then I think finally, the other thing I did was also figure out where can I be useful? You know, one thing I realized was because I've always been politically engaged from a young age, there are a lot of opportunities because of it. But on the flip side, I was also trying to figure out, like, what can I help be an expert in? Because if you hear me everywhere, every single time with a different message, as much as I genuinely care about everything I speak about, it kind of dilutes what my particular purpose and efficiency can be in the space. Because there are going to be other experts that can handle something much better than I can. And so taking off the pressure to feel like I was also a newscaster commenting on every single thing that happened in the world also meant that I felt like when I'm participating, there's a greater impact because I'm helping fill a space that only I particularly have the capacity to do, or I'm helping contribute in a way that's unique to me versus being one of 10 billion people feeling like I have to comment on this when I'm still learning myself about what's happening, or I'm still learning how to grapple with or how to be of service. And so those have been the three kind of tenants that has really shifted whatever pressure I had felt prior and allowed me to focus on what feels most authentic to me. I love every single word <laughs> that you just said. And I recently told my assistant, get that Twitter app off my phone too. Yes. I feel like Twitter specifically is super negative. Mm -hmm. I enjoy Instagram more because it's more creative. I like to see what art people are making, mm -hmm. you know, what songs they're singing. Like I said, a, a more visual person. So the random commenting does feel tonally pretty negative to me. Mm -hmm. Speaking of tone, people can't hear your tone mm -hmm. when you say something. I recently had some girl complaining to me about having to study. She said, you know, I'm not motivated and, you know, can you help me? And that was like the first day that the Taliban took over in Afghanistan. 
And I said, well, don't complain to me. Like, look at these poor Afghani girls. Like, they would love to be able to study today. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there are soldiers at their doors with AKs. If you know me at all, you know I'm going to say, make space in your brain for the poor girls who can't study today. And, of course, people jumped on me and said, she was looking for encouragement, and you didn't offer that. Mm -hmm. You know, you were so mean to her. And I just thought, well, that's so interesting that people see that comment and you're choosing to take it in a negative way, what I'm saying to her. And then so you're taking it negatively. So now you may impact the way she sees my comment. Mm -hmm. You know, there's four different ways to say something. If you even think about how Twitter works kind of as a format, when you look at your feed, at least speaking for myself, I don't follow half the people on my feed. Like what you see are tweets, retweets, random things. Whereas other platforms, in order for me to see what you're up to, I have to follow you, which means I have to pay enough attention to kind of understand who you are in the world, paid enough attention to understand what your energy is. And I'm an active follower that sees multiple things. Whereas Twitter, you're engaging with literal strangers. I probably only see a handful of tweets from people that I actively follow and know. And everything else is just things that have kind of come my way. And so it changes how people engage. Like you're saying, there's no tone. There's no ability to expound to say, you know, some people, and we had just talked about it, can find it personally motivating to contextualize, look at the opportunity that I do have. Let me focus on what I do have versus what I don't. But there's no space for that conversation. And I think it's just really such an interesting way in which we have chosen to engage with one another because I haven't found it to be a constructive space because it's been tasked with this great effort of having really big conversations that the platform is not equipped to handle. You know, if you think about how many social movements, all of these things that have had great impact, that have had to be disseminated through Twitter, you know, these are things that activists, scholars spend their entire career thinking about, writing about, coming up with opinions on, rewriting their opinions on it. And now we have a platform where we're supposed to reduce all of that complex thought into a couple characters and then interface with each other based on whatever the couple characters are. And one thing that my grandfather said recently, you know, oftentimes people will ask for your instant reaction to something or your instant opinion on something. And he says, you can always make the distinction. I can give you my reaction, but I can't give you my opinion because mm. my opinion requires thought and the ability to really process this. So my reaction may not be reflective of my opinion. And the only reason I bring that up is that kind of distinction also helped me figure out what my personal rub was with certain social platforms that are more so oriented in reaction and give you less space to cultivate and go through the nuance and sometimes difficulty of developing an opinion. And so Twitter feels like that space, at least for me, where it's primarily reaction oriented, but we conflate it to be people's opinions. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The other thing that you said that's important to talk about is how you found meaning in your work. Mm -hmm. And when I was approached to do a podcast, I thought, well, I've been doing a voiceover on a TV show for literally like what will be 18 seasons. Right. Who needs to hear me speak more? <laughs> but again, we do have this platform, whether we like it or not. Ultimately, we like it. And so how do we use the platform to make our lives more meaningful, right. to make our career and entertainment more meaningful? So in a sea of social media and images on social media and what our children are being raised with, 
the spotlight is on different things of what people feel are important. But we do need diversity of thought and diversity of how people live their life. Mm -hmm. And it's so refreshing to see someone with so much talent and so much physical beauty choosing to really live a meaningful life at such a young age. Thank you. Everyone has their own journey. But for you to make a decision to be meaningful and thoughtful about your choices at this age and even younger. I mean, I've been watching you speak at industry events for years where I had the pleasure of meeting you for the first time and your mom. Mm -hmm. And it's really refreshing and so necessary. So there's so much gratitude out there from me for people who really choose to use your spotlight in a positive way. Thank you. I mean, I even have to go back to how you've helped. I think it was through a conversation you had with my mama. Shout out Chocolate Mommy Love. Chocolate Mommy Love. <laughs> Which you also gave us some of the verbiage about how to take care of myself in this space. It may have been a conversation you had had in regards to even what to ask for to maintain your quality of life while working. And it came at such a critical time because the one thing that I've had to kind of get over was thinking of self-care as selfish. And so I always felt like, oh, if I'm pouring into myself, I'm taking away from something I should be pouring into, uh, something more meaningful. And I think similarly, being on a show now only for a handful of seasons, but being on a show in which I went from being a minor working like 10 hours to being like, okay, 16 hour days, doing the whole thing, going to school, having this other stuff that I'm passionate about. That conversation shifted how I entered the last season and the ways in which I was able to come out feeling so much better and feeling like I maintained so much more of myself throughout the season. Whereas what would happen in the past was feeling like I'd go through this experience and be kind of completely depleted by the end of it. So by the time it got to me getting to live my personal life, there was nothing else to give or to live because I had just given it all to this filming experience. And I, I have to say that conversation really shifted like how we approached this last season and how much more enjoyable it was because I got to enjoy my art. I got to enjoy what I did because I was taken care of and being able to protect myself um, in a new way. I don't know why. I've said this so many times and all the crew is so thankful to me when I say it publicly. I don't know why network television hasn't really caught up or understood the fact that the model by which we make network TV drama, sitcoms are different. I don't have any experience with that. But the way we make network TV drama is not a good set up. It may have worked in the past. It didn't really work in the past. I mean, we know that the system is so broken and so flawed. Everyone's too tired. Everyone's cranky. Everybody's mad. The writers are overworked. The crew is exhausted. 16-hour days and no quality of life and no home life does not make for happy people. Yeah. And that makes for a really unhappy set. And the culture on network TV dramas are notorious for being toxic workplaces. And I wish the networks would just really wake up. I mean, we're chasing streaming all day long. Everyone's yeah. chasing streaming. <laughs> so why network TV doesn't truly chase streaming and like change the way they approach not only writing series and creating shows, but rewrite the rules on how we film it and how we shoot it. Yeah. And dictate to the advertisers, we're just not making 20 episodes of a TV show anymore. We're not doing that. But also, I feel like if you create shows with less episodes and take more risks 
and be more creative, people will come back to network television. Network TV executives are stuck in this model of this is the way we do things because this is what the advertisers dictate. I think it's safe to say now we're all in a situation where, if anything, this generation has taught us is that we can dictate to the advertisers what we're willing to accept Mm -hmm. and what we'll buy and who we'll support. I wish network TV would get on the ball because they would get better actors. They would get young talent who did want to do network TV and who were excited by it if the networks could just come up to speed how to make it a doable, fun experience. Mm -hmm. They really need to shake it up a bit. I mean, it's interesting because I've I've been grateful through Blackish and Grownish to be on some pretty good sets all in all in terms of energy and people enjoying what they do. And still, I think even set up in the best of conditions, there were things that my parents had to fight for, such as quality of education. Like there isn't even necessarily a culture for young actors to set them up well for school. You may theoretically have the resources, you may theoretically have a set teacher, but no one talks about if you're working up until the age of 17 and being in high school, trying to get school done in these 20 minute blocks for a max of three hours, when most kids are spending their whole days doing school or the majority of their days and have support in different teachers. And so even down to that, we had to work through and find teachers that fit even our level of learning. Because it's not only me, but every kid on the show on Blackish is really bright. And oftentimes studio teachers didn't have to necessarily come equipped with a certain information or knowledge that matched the level of study that we were doing. So things like that really helped shape the experience, the fact that my parents went in and specifically had that conversation. And so we were able to shift what that quality of life looked like. And then even kind of having the experience of Blackish under my belt before moving to Grownish, trying my very best to be like, okay, well, let's try something different. Let's smash the perceived hierarchy that's reinforced as soon as you get your call sheet and you're assigned a number um, and yes, all of these other things. And then also being a child of a DP, to your point, also really considering crew in mind. I mean, even the distinction between cast and crew is so arbitrary because it prevents you at times from thinking of this as a total team sport and that nothing happens without everyone else putting in 110%. And so it was interesting filming in COVID because I thought, well, wow, isn't this a perfect opportunity to completely rethink how we're doing this anyways? And so I saw that beginning to happen. And I'm grateful that at least under Freeform, we have some renegades coming in and trying to bring in new ideas and be more talent-centered. But there is still so far that we can go, especially considering like how lucrative of our industry it is. And it, it's it's kind of this weird mind, I don't know, it messes with your mind to realize that you're in this crazy industry that's extremely lucrative, deals with exorbitant numbers. But for some reason, by the time you get to talking about budget, there's always a reason as to why we can't account for quality of life or why we can't invest in quality of life as we invest in all these other spaces. And so I'm hoping that coming out of COVID and filming, there's at least some maintenance of a couple things that we grabbed onto that we had to for quality of life, such as getting rid of the myth of having to work while you're sick and the culture of cast and crew. You always show up when you're sick, as long as you're not you think you're not crazy contagious. The idea that somebody would take an insurance day or you'd throw off the whole system if you showed up and you were under the weather. Hopefully little things like that can lead to much bigger changes in how we shoot TV and we can make it just as enjoyable as the entertainment that we create. It's true. I agree. I mean, 13 seasons, I never took a sick day. Wow. I took a couple days when I had kids. But a couple days? 
<laughs> for this crazy couple times that I was sick I would go to work knowing that I had pink eye or like when I get a cold like it goes immediately to my eye and so I would show up with pink eye texting them like listen I have pink eye but I'm gonna come to set just so you see that I have pink eye and ultimately <laughs> yep. they send the doctor to the set so we're constantly learning right mm -hmm. whatever we do on our journeys every day we learn something and it's recently the TV unions and the hair and makeup union that's another piece that I sort of am just learning about. It was so weird to me how when I have a black woman trying to do my hair, everybody was confused. Mm -hmm. Her and I weren't confused. <laughs> right. It's like, oh, the black hairdresser is supposed to do the black girls. And I was like, um, what? What do you mean? I mean, traditionally, that was the only space as to why they'd be in this space in the first place was, oh, because you're the only person aware enough to be able to do this type of hair. And it's fascinating because that runs through, I mean, so much of the industry is this idea, especially when you have people of different cultural backgrounds, like you're coming in just to have your input on this cultural background. And as much as we absolutely do need people that are experts in curly hair and all of these things. Of course. When you think of, to your point, the opportunities that are limited because that is the box they stay in versus just viewing all of these incredible people as ultimately experts in their field. And they just happen to know more about hair because they have been expected to know more about hair. And the same standards have not been set for dominant culture spaces of, I mean, you know, whenever I work with people that aren't in my team, here I am making sure that I have my makeup, my hair supplies, because it's just not expected. And theoretically, I'm still in the quote unquote lighter side of the range. So to think that there are times where I can walk into spaces and my skin tone isn't even accounted for, you can't imagine when you're thinking of the plethora and the expansiveness of brown skin and brown hair that it just has not been considered. And the white hair and makeup people expect that, oh, they could learn how to do brown skin or they could learn how to do black hair or different textured hair. So then why can't a black hairdresser and a black makeup artist, why can't you expect that they are able to learn the same? Of course they can. Yeah. You know, you'd have no problem hiring a white person for a brown skin person mm -hmm. and just expecting them to figure it out. But somehow a black hair and makeup person can't figure out white hair or white skin. Of course they can. Give them the opportunity and they could figure it out the same way you'd give the opportunity. Anyway, it's a constant struggle to try to have eyes on on so much. And there's so many politics. It's never-ending drama and um, culture wars and white ignorance and white fragility and all of it. You know, but When We Vote is an incredible initiative. And we're getting ready here in California to have a vote to recall Newsom. Mm -hmm. But it's just, it's so mind-blowing to me that because people aren't happy, a pandemic happened. Mm -hmm. These politicians have to somehow go through the pandemic with everybody else, figure it out, figure out how to do their job during a pandemic, and somehow do it better than everybody else. And if you don't like their response to the pandemic, then we'll just get rid of them. And I think because no one's understanding the politics behind it, and you know, this took even some digging on my part, was it was like, okay, I understand that we're going through a moment in which we're getting really particular about not just lumping people under the moniker of liberal and progressive and being absolutely okay with anything they do, as long as they say that. But when you're digging into it and realizing, oh, well, this is also an opportunity for the conservative party to have a much bigger say in California politics. And that's something that hasn't been as outwardly discussed. You know, it's kind of been disguised as we're reacting to his response to the pandemic 
pandemic versus the political moves behind it of saying, well, there's an opportunity for the first time in our history for California to not be guaranteed a blue state and run by liberal politicians. And those are the things that I, I feel like are kept so far from the zeitgeist in our cultural conversations that it makes it even difficult for people to participate in politics because everything feels so convoluted. And that's part of why when we started what was initially called 18 by 18, and now since I am no longer 18, <laughs> um, and <laughs> it's no longer 2018, when we talk about We Vote Next and we talk about just kind of my larger voting work and participating with other organizations even, it was focusing on like, how do we make this process less opaque and more transparent? Because I feel like here I am sitting with every resource in the world, whether it be professors or people that do this work professionally, and I'm still confused. And so I'm like, if I can sit here with every resource and every opportunity and listen to 130,000 minutes of NPR every year, and I'm still looking at this ballot, trying to decipher it and decode its meanings and the way that it's worded, well, then everyone who doesn't get to dictate and, and set aside a ton of time in their life to decipher this, it's making it really hard to figure out how we actually have input in our world. And so that's part of just kind of what spawned my interest in it. And then also what spawned my interest in it was my inability to decide what topic I cared about. And it felt like voting was this awesome opportunity to get a ton of people in a room that care deeply about different topics. Because when we looked at our midterm ballot, when I first started this initiative, that was the first time we had so much on there talking about climate change, talking about reproductive rights, talking about identity and the way our budgets are allocated and policing. And so it's really stemmed from this place of being like, I'm passionate about so much, but I don't know how to go about it and find an entry point in which I can talk about all of this. But ultimately through voting, I got to bring together so many incredible young activists and socially engaged people into the conversation because it is this large umbrella that covers so much of what we care about is how we vote about it too. Yeah. I don't know how you feel, but from the outside, you are just a fantastic balance of thoughtfulness, having fun, and living your life with purpose. So I hope if anybody listening does not follow you on social media, <laughs> on Instagram, I hope they start following you immediately because you're really striking a nice balance and being so inspirational to so many young people. Thank you. I just tell my daughter, whatever Yara does, just do whatever Yara does. That's like my thing. I'm like, I don't know mm -hmm. the answer, but Yara knows it. So just do whatever Yara does. And I love your dad's, like your mom always shows, chocolate mommy love is Yara's mom. Mm -hmm. And she's one of the most gorgeous women you'll ever see. And she's also my fitness guru. Like, <laughs> yeah. She always does her workouts on her Instagram. So I'm like, if she can do that, I can do it. Yeah. And then she always shows off those beautiful plates of fruit that your dad makes yes. for her. And I just, the love that your family has for each other is such a source of inspiration for me and puts a smile on my face every time I check in. So, so much gratitude and love sending to you and your whole family. And I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. Well, thank you so much. And please know before I got on, I got texts from the whole family to say hello. And so that love is being sent right back. I think we're grateful. I mean, just knowing how you've paved the way before I even was in the ABC family or in this industry, but then to know you personally and to feel the impact personally of even knowing how we can advocate for ourselves in this space and make this space more enjoyable has been so impactful, especially as I 
enter these new years of being a producer and being more involved. So thank you so much. And thank you for thinking of me for this wonderful conversation. You have the best day. And I think the last thing I just want to say is we're always moving forward. Whether we, you know, you said I'm going to make mistakes. I say I'm going to make mistakes. I've made plenty of them, Lord knows. But as long as we keep moving forward and keep good energy and positive energy in our heart, we just got to keep on keeping on. Yeah. So I love you, Yara. Much love to you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.